Welcome to the Focus and Chill podcast, where we discuss productivity tactics that work for neurodiverse individuals. Every episode, we interview guests with lived experience of neurodiversity who also have a solid productivity and habit game, and pass the learnings on to you, our wise and benevolent audience. We're your hosts, Jeremy and Joey. I'm Joey, and I coach creatives to get moving on their most ambitious projects through the power of solid habits and strong focus. I'm also a perpetual student of psychology and perpetually on a quest to a one-armed chin-up. And I'm Jeremy. I'm a neurodiverse software developer turned startup founder, building habit and focus software for people with ADHD. My cool party trick is leaving parties early so I get to sleep on time to do my three hour long morning routine. The Focus and Chill podcast is brought to you by Focus Bear, a habit and productivity app that makes healthy habits and deep work the path of least resistance. If you have a tendency to check emails or scroll through Instagram first thing in the morning, but long to develop a meditation and exercise habit first thing, Focus Bear can help you. The app blocks distractions on all your devices and guides you through your habits one at a time. Throughout the day, Focus Bear assists you to stay in deep work by blocking websites and apps that are unrelated to your chosen focus mode. Life's not all about work though. You'll be prompted to take regular breaks to rest your eyes and stretch your muscles. At the end of the day, Focus Bear helps you switch off. Work-related apps get hidden so you can unwind and sleep well. Check out the app by going to focusbear.io. Welcome to episode number 30 of the Focus and Chill podcast. We're thrilled to be joined by Jared Atkinson today. Jared is a director at ARTD Consultants. He's well-versed in program and policy evaluation, business analytics, and data visualization. His expertise extends to market and social research, financial modeling, and nonprofit government and business strategy. A dedicated advocate for neurodiversity, Jared serves as a board member for various Australian not-for-profits and advises on diversity, equity, and inclusion committees within the research and evaluation committee. Outside of his professional endeavors, Jared is a keen trail runner and was trained as an opera singer. Welcome to the show, Jared. Thanks for having me. Really good to have you. So to begin with, could you tell us about your experience with neurodiversity? When did you realize you weren't neurotypical? Well, it's interesting looking back on things. Formally, I was diagnosed as autistic in 2019. And as I've sort of come to terms with that diagnosis. So I've sort of realized that, well, wait a second, I've always been outside of the neurotypical norm. And looking at my childhood, looking at my schooling experiences, I realized that, no, I always felt like I was different to everyone else in terms of the way that I processed information, in terms of, you know, how I experienced the world. And it was really only around 2019 that, you know, I was given this new framework of of looking at it through an autistic lens where, you know, I could understand why I would react in certain ways to certain situations. Prior to that, I'd really just been building various coping strategies to just kind of survive in the world. And, you know, they worked for the most part, but it was when they started to kind of fall down, particularly in, in my personal life and relationships, that's when I started to look at, you know, was there something more? And hearing the experiences of some close colleagues and friends who had also received an adult diagnosis of autism, when I read their experiences and talked with them, it just resonated too much. And so I thought, well, I better look into this. 
And that's when I did go through the diagnostic process. Very familiar for me because it's pretty similar that uh, as a, a child and a teenager, I felt different, but it's only later that I think it's been actually possible to get an adult diagnosis and a lot more awareness now. Yeah. And, you know, thinking back when I was growing up and this is showing my age, it was sort of going into primary school in the early 90s, there really wasn't a deep understanding of autism as a concept, even within the psychological community in Australia, let alone in the education community. And so people like myself who had the capability to mask a fair bit and were also reasonably intelligent tended to get put in the gifted bucket and that was left at that. And, you know, nobody even thought about, you know, was there something else going on there? It was just like, oh, they're gifted and people bully gifted people. And that's why he's socially isolated um, within his school group. So that's really what happened. And over the last 30 years, we've seen that narrative change a bit. There's still a long way to go, of course, but we, we are starting to sort of realise that there are these different ways of thinking and different ways of experiencing the world and that we should be doing what we can to support people no matter what way that they experience the world so that they can achieve their potential. Yeah, absolutely. And probably a lot more awareness of the benefits as well of neurodivergence, that it's not all a death sentence or anything like that. That I remember when my one of my cousins was diagnosed, there was a lot of concern that my auntie was saying she'd read stats about suicide rates and how things seemed pretty dire for autistic people. But I think there's now awareness that it doesn't have to be like that, that the social model of disability as well, pointing out that some of the ways that it's challenging for us is actually not our problem, but rather the, the way society is structured. Hmm. It was really good to hear you talk at the Diversity Council of Australia event a couple of months ago, and you were talking about many of those those structural changes that are needed. Do you feel like things are getting better now? I think things are getting better. They're certainly better than where they were, you know, even five years ago. But what we need to do is remain vigilant. Um, there's still plenty of work to be done and still plenty of opportunities that are left untaken by the broader community, by businesses, by governments, in order to support neurodivergent people, but also to realise that the potential and opportunities that can be had for a better society when we do address barriers and inequities. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, speaking of work, Jared, uh, what kind of uh, projects are you working on in uh, your working hours? So. My main job is as an evaluation consultant, and most people kind of stare blankly at me when I tell them that that's what I do. Um, some of them go, oh, consultant, because let's face it, if you've been following the news in the last six months, consultants are a bit of a dirty word. But ultimately, what I do in simple terms is when the government or a nonprofit organization wants to do something that changes the world or addresses a policy issue or responds to a problem. They'll go out, they'll design a program, they'll implement that program. And, you know, they'll spend usually taxpayer money to do it. Eventually, somebody's going to ask, you know, all that money you spent 
did it actually work? Did it achieve that goal that you said you were going to achieve? Did it solve the problem? That's when my phone rings. My job is to go in, understand policy responses and how they've worked, how effective they've been, and find ways to make them better so that you know these programs can deliver the best outcomes for people. I usually say my favorite clients are the ones who call me before they spend the money. And that's when I can get in with them on the ground floor and ask them, you know, what does it mean for this program to be successful? How will we know if we've solved this particular social issue? And then we can put in place the frameworks and the mechanisms to investigate and measure that along the way. And mm. that can be really helpful in designing better policies and programs and, and really, you know, introduce more accountability and transparency into government and into the nonprofit sector. And so my job these days is I manage managers. So on any given day, I have between 10 and 15 evaluation projects going on. Some little small projects that are, you know, design this little piece of an evaluation for a client through to multi-year projects that are looking at a program from start to finish and evaluating it along the way to big policy reviews. So I'm doing one at the moment and we're looking at a portfolio of programs in response to a particular problem. They said, yeah, no, one program isn't going to solve this. We've actually got to throw about 15 or 16 programs at it. And my job is to go in and look at that set of 16 programs and understand how they've interacted with each other, how they've been rolled out, are there particular patterns that we see in what works and what doesn't, and then provide that feedback to the client so that when they need to make similar policy responses, they know which programs and which models are going to be most effective. It sounds like quite the task to be evaluating all of those projects. Do you have uh, like a particular, like I'm imagining you have a particular framework for evaluating it, like for instance, like when in like effective altruism, whenever we're looking at a cause area, we tend to look at like how tractable it is um, to make progress or um, how neglected the problem is and also the, the scale of the problem. Like, do you, like, would you be able to talk a bit more about like how, how you evaluate if in, in those? So every program is different and there's never a silver bullet, one size fits all solution, but there's sort of, one thing that I usually use in my evaluation work, and that's the concept of a program logic. And a program logic is essentially, it's a bit like a flowchart diagram, but instead of looking at processes and how they link together, what we do is we say, okay, given these resources that we have on one side, what are the activities that we're going to do? And if we do those activities, what are they going to produce in terms of outputs? And if we produce these outputs, what are going to be the outcomes for the people that we're serving, for the stakeholders that are involved? And we look at that in the short, medium, and long term. And we say, okay, if we have these short-term outcomes, we expect these medium-term outcomes to occur. And then if those medium outcomes occur, long-term outcomes should occur. And you get those impacts at you know, the big, hairy, audacious policy goal that they're trying to set. And so... What it is is a map, an understanding of the pathways that are going to lead to success. And 
what I tend to do, especially with those clients that get me in on the ground floor, is we help design them and we sit down with them and say, okay, what are the resources that you have? What are the fundamental assumptions about the state of the world that are going to set up this policy response? And we help them refine the activities, the set of activities, what's in scope, what's not, and really test with them, you know, not only if you do this, will this occur? Should we expect this to occur? But also, how are we going to know if it's occurred? How can we measure that outcome? Because sometimes it's not always easily measurable. And that's why it's important to get the logic right. Because sometimes you can say, well, we've seen this particular outcome happen. We can't measure this next outcome. But because we've seen all these other outcomes occur, we can be confident that that outcome is likely to have occurred. And that's because of the program itself. So that's a tool that I use a lot and, and my company uses a lot in working with clients. But in the day-to-day -day evaluation of how to measure whether something's worked, it really comes down to what that program has, what um, kinds of information is available that we can gather, what are the questions that we're asking. And you really learn to be method agnostic and data agnostic. Sometimes you get nice, lovely big administrative data sets, and you'll be using some advanced statistical modeling and methods to really understand that. I do financial modeling, cost-benefit analysis to try and monetize the effects of programs and see whether the net effect of the program has outweighed the costs of delivering it. But at the same time, I'm doing surveys, interviews, qualitative analysis. You do have to be data agnostic and sort of think of what information might help us to answer the questions that we have about the program? Hmm. It sounds so important. I remember a story about a program in the US called Scared Straight, where mm. they eventually evaluated it and found that it actually increased the rates of children ending up as criminals, even though the program actually had the opposite intention. That's exactly right. And that's a case study that gets taught a lot in my line of work because it just illustrates how important it is to go back and look at something to see whether it's working. And that's especially true when, you know, you might pilot something or develop something in a research context, but then you're rolling it out to a broader population and you need to understand whether that still works when you've scaled it up. Does it work with different cohorts, different groups in society? Because that's when you start to realize, okay, maybe we need to tweak this to, to match the needs of particular groups, particular regions. Mm, absolutely. Now, we were talking before the, the recording about your running plans that you're going to be doing an ultra marathon pretty soon. What do you get that's up right. to when you're not working? So, yeah, um, a lot of what I do the rest of the time at the moment is training for that ultra marathon. Um, I'm running the Peaks and Trails 50K at Dunkeld in about a month. And that's kind of the big ultra marathon goal for the year. But I do a lot of running training outside of that. It's just a good way to sort of clear the mind away from work. I also do weight training as well. I've been weight training for a couple of decades now. So that is just a, a good habit that I've formed. As well as that, I do play a bit of video games. I do music still. I don't tend to do as much opera as I used to, but I, I do try to still sing and make music and make art and I've been trying to grow vegetables in my garden. It's been mixed success. Um, it gets pretty cold down here where I am in Warrnambool, Victoria. So 
you have to be um, pretty selective about what you can and can't grow, but I, I'm getting there. Nice. What does the training look like for the 50K? Lots of long runs. Um, you really have to just change your thinking from running fast to just survival um, and really teaching your body to last for long distances without just collapsing. And so, you know, I'll have a couple of long runs in a week where I'm going 20, 25, even 30K just to get the body used to that. Um, I've also done some half marathons in the lead up. So just trying to get that competitive experience. And, and that was good. I did a 25K trail run a couple of months ago and it absolutely broke me. It was a good chance to kind of see what happens when everything goes wrong. And so, yeah, everything went wrong that day. It was very hilly, a bit muddy, and I didn't get the nutrition right. And I ended up cramping up very badly about halfway through. And yeah, came in at a time that was far worse than I had had hoped, but it, it taught me a lot of lessons about how to prepare adequately and manage myself during the race. And a week later, I went and ran another a uh, trail event, a uh, half marathon that was even longer and got through that one in a faster time and feeling much more comfortable because I had really thought more about, okay, how do I approach approach this mentally and physically? Mm. And so that's all leading into how I approach this uh, 50K in a few weeks. Yeah, awesome. I've done three ultras in my life and Two of them were great. One of them was not fun. And <laughs> I, I applaud you for your efforts there. Are you going to carry pickle juice with you to help with cramps? I'm going to try and get some pickle juice to go in. I've, I've used it before um, when I used to play rugby. Um, oh, yeah. Sadly retired from rugby now, too many injuries. <laughs> but yeah, that, that used to come in a treat late in the game when you start yeah. to creep up. <laughs> yeah, no, here you can get hot shots which is basically like a gel but it has chili in it and that's meant to help with the cramp reflex my uncle was telling me about that that he was doing a bike ride and had to take it so that he could actually get down the hill because he had cramped up and was about to crash if he didn't get out of the cramp zone oh goodness well it sounds like a, a very rich extracurricular routine hmm. so jared uh, what does your morning routine look like and how's that evolved over time so at the moment, my morning routine is I'm usually up around 5.30ish and pretty much straight out to exercise. And so it'll be either running with a local running crew, which is a, a great way to sort of get a little social time in my day whilst not actually having to be too social because you're running, uh, which is fantastic. And getting that exercise out of the way. Otherwise, I'm straight into weight training in the morning follow that up with coffee, breakfast, and then about an hour of just trying to sort of sit down, chill out, read the newspapers. I do try and get across the news and what's happening in the world so that I'm aware of the key issues going into my day. And by about 8.30, I'll start to actually get into my emails and and begin work proper for the day. Over time, that's evolved. I think one of the bad habits that I broke out of in the last couple of years was rolling out of bed and straight into the office. It was a really bad thing during COVID when you couldn't get outside. And so I was working from home. I would wake up at 
you know, 6.55 and be at my home desk checking emails, doing work at seven in the morning. And that wasn't really good for me in the long term. You know, it felt good in the short term because I felt like I was getting stuff done and nobody had quite gotten into the office yet. But it was really impinging on my ability to kind of get in the right mental frame to start the day. So I'm in a much better place around that now. Yeah, I can relate to that. I was similar during COVID and definitely not great for my mental health. What helped you to get out of that pattern? Because I imagine if you're waking up at seven, were you working late as well? I was working pretty late as well. And so it really came down to the coaching and mentoring relationships that I had within my organization. We invest quite a bit in trying to support our staff and develop our staff. And so I had a conversation with my mentor and we basically decided that, yeah, I had to make a covenant with myself that I wasn't going to do those 7 a.m. starts, that I would have to start later. And so I moved that to 8 a.m. And then beginning of July, I actually moved it back to 8.30 because talking again in the coaching and mentoring process, kind of realized that, you know, maybe I can try being more productive over four days rather than five. You know, I was really struggling to get through the hours in five days a week. So by saying, okay, do four days a week worth of hours, but try and make them more productive um, and see how that goes. So now I start a little later, finish a little earlier. I've got a bit more time in my day to do other things, to focus on some of the nonprofit work that I do. Um, but I've still got time available every day to support my teams as they need it. But um, yeah, we're going to see how that goes. Unfortunately, I don't get paid the five-day wage for oh. four days of work, like has happened in some other companies as an experiment. But it's still kind of useful to see whether by you know trimming some of that time out of the day, I may end up actually being a, a more useful contributor. Yeah, I've done that myself for a few years and found four days, I'm probably close to as productive and I'm way happier. Have you found that, that not working as much, has it improved your mental health? It's still early days, but I'm I'm feeling a, a little bit more relaxed about you know, being able to take that time at the end of the day. We're still finding our feet though, um, just because of the nature of my work. It's not as if I can just take a whole day off, nor mm. can I really say no to clients just because it's outside my particular window of hours. But what I'm seeing so far is it gives me a little bit more flexibility to take a break during the day if I need to, mm. just so that I can recenter, refocus on a task and you know still keep myself available if my teams need to get me in on something if my clients need to talk to me about a particular project or an issue that's going on i've still got that time for them but i can you know be more flexible about that hmm. yeah well great to hear what are the other things that you do to optimize your productivity i live by my calendar um that's my to-do list that's my um you know, running tracker of where I'm spending my time. So at the end of the week, I'm analyzing. I mean, for those who aren't familiar with how consulting and other service organizations work, you've got two types of work. You've got chargeable work and non-chargeable work. There's 
never really a concept of busy and not busy. If you're not doing chargeable work, you invest your time in non-chargeable work, but you need to track that all. So I use my calendar as my first point of call to log what I've been spending my time on so that I can then at the end of the week analyze that and see which projects are getting most of my time, which ones I've barely had to touch. And if I'm spending a lot of time on non-chargeable work, be that, you know, writing thought pieces or um, preparing for conferences or doing stuff like coaching and mentoring staff and providing that capacity building within my team. I've got that all there in my calendar so that I can keep track of that. It's also a good way to sort of block out time for me if I need to think about a particular project or know which tasks need to be done to support my staff members. I think the biggest challenge is that I've often just blocked out large chunks of time and that's meant that my teams haven't been able to get FaceTime with me. But what I'm much better at doing now is kind of putting things as free time. So it's still there as a task, but people can chuck a meeting in the calendar if they need to. And that kind of ties into the other productivity thing that I'm using a lot, which is booking software. And I know there's a few platforms out there. I use the Microsoft one because it's integrated with the systems that I use. And we can also set it up for external client interview work so that we can actually have a team of interviewers. But I have my own booking page and I say to people in my email signature and when I'm working with them, please don't just call me out of the blue. Phone calls I do not handle well. Um, They kind of just get me on edge. So if you want time with me, here's a link to my booking page and you can set up a time in there and you can see your calendar and my calendar and find those times that are going to work. And that's been really useful for managing my time. I know what's coming up. I know that there's going to be a conversation that I need to prepare for. So I'm coming into those meetings in the right frame of mind and and prepared. And that makes it much more efficient when we do have to have those meetings. Of course, you know, there's plenty of meetings that could be emails. And, you know, thankfully, I, I work with my team to try and have multiple forms of communication and also understand what people's communications preferences are. And that's been really useful because we can, you know, use asynchronous modes of communication when we need to and that also helps things get done a lot more efficiently and we save those meetings for the the useful stuff and i actually include a bit of social in that because most of my team are you know located or working remotely at least some of the time so it's important that we when we do get that time together that we are able to have a bit of a chat and remind each other that yeah, we're actually humans at the other end of the camera and that we have lives going on and emotions and feelings and that we're able to kind of acknowledge that and, and feel connected that way before we get into the the actual key issues. Hmm. Yeah, I, I love that, especially the using the booking link as opposed to ad hoc phone calls. I'm the same. <laughs> if someone calls me out of the blue, I, I just hate it. <laughs> I'm curious about how you you manage, I guess, deep work with also empowering your team because I, I find that pretty challenging myself that I, I've done the same thing. I've blocked out most of my calendar so that I can get stuff done, but then people feel like I'm not available enough. But if I make myself too available, then it really stresses me out and makes me feel just 
by the end of the day, I'm depleted. So do you have, with your booking system, do you have a way of limiting the number of hours in meetings that you do and not having it so they can't book the same day, for example? I do allow people to book the same day, particularly because sometimes my team will need something pretty urgently. And so they do need to get that time in my calendar. Sometimes if I do feel like I need a half day or a day that I need to just really hunker down and focus on, you know, say writing a report or doing some deep thinking about a program logic model, for example, I will block that in my calendar, but I'll also inform my teams to let them know, look, this is deep thinking time. And, you know, if you need something urgently, you'll probably have to put it through by email. And, you know, I think it's important that you come up for air every now and then but, you know, if you really do need to go into that flow state and, and really think for hours at a time, for me, it's about blocking that in advance and communicating that with the people who are going to be affected by that. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a really good balance. Now, at the beginning of this question, you talked about how going down to four days per week has made it easier to take breaks, which I think is a, a great approach. And we're going to take a quick break now. Hello there, this is Joey. I'm excited to tell you about a project I run where I help imaginative people just like you breathe life into their creative dreams, like writing that book or performing that stand-up comedy set. I know the first step can be daunting. I have been there many times and have helped many people on a similar journey. If you've wondered how to bring those ideas swimming around in your head to life, get in touch. We'll shrink the intimidating dragon off a goal into a cute little lizard of an achievable daily habit that you can do every day to get started and stay moving. Click on the link in the show description to get in touch. So Jared, um, what's one habit that you'd like to remove from your life? Either a bad one, uh, either a bad habit or one that takes up too much time? So I know what other people would say is a bad habit that I should remove from my life, and that's my coffee addiction. Um, but they can pry that espresso cup from my cold dead hands. <laughs> um, I like my coffee. I probably drink more than is is healthy, and I've probably cut down a fair bit since COVID. Um, I found sort of beginning of COVID, I was really going through a lot of coffee, and even before 2020, I worked in the office. We had coffee, you know, all hours. We had an espresso machine. We had filter. And you just got in the habit. I think I drink a lot less coffee now, but I'll never really fully cut it out. What I would see as a bad habit that I need to get out of is just, you know, mindlessly scrolling, particularly on social media. I do spend a lot of time on LinkedIn and that's good. It's it's important for, you know, talking about some of the issues that I'm passionate about. It's good for connecting with my industry, with clients. but you know, too often I'll find myself just scrolling, 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 liking. And it's it's time that I could be spending doing something, if not more productive, more, you know, intellectually and emotionally fulfilling and interesting. Yeah, I think those apps are set up that way, <laughs> trying to get our attention, like just having something, a few boring things, and then something to grab our attention again, that intermittent reward. I think that's the worst part. I know how these apps work. I, I've spent time understanding the psychology of stickiness and, you know, doing advisory around marketing campaigns and, and design and behavioral science. So I know how these apps work. And yet 
even then I still fall into the the same habits and routines. It, it's a great example that, you know, knowledge is power, but it's not the be all and end all in terms of breaking some of those behavioral patterns. Hmm. But it sounds like you've been pretty effective at breaking, for example, the the 7am wake up and go straight to work, which sounded like a, a really profound habit to, to shift. Are you going yeah, to do a covenant with yourself? I'm pretty happy with that. And, you know, it, it took a bit of work, but it, it was just when I realized that I was actually coming to work in a better state of mind, that's what helped it helped it stick i could see those results in terms of my mood and my energy hmm. and so that that has helped it stick yeah and speaking of mood and energy you were saying too that you were working quite long hours back then and potentially switching off later in the day how have you changed that i imagine if you're waking up at 5 30 you, you're going to bed quite early i tend to be in bed by about 9 30 most nights i used to be a pretty big night owl and you know consulting has a reputation as being a pretty brutal business i'm lucky to work for an organization that kind of recognizes that after about 45 hours of work time in a week your productivity your and your mental acuity just goes off a cliff and when our job is about really intelligent thinking critical thinking and analysis if we go past 45 hours, we're useless. We're not going to get any more out of me or any of my teams. So we really try to, to work with the team to say, you know, we'd rather have your hours be good hours rather than lots of hours. And so that's, that's been helpful. I used to work much longer hours before coming to that current firm that I'm with. And over time, I've kind of shrunk that down and really thought about, you know, what's the quality of the hours that I have. And so as that's gone on, I've kind of shrunk it a bit more. But um, yeah, I'm usually in bed by 9.30. I do try to get a good night's sleep, especially because it does impact how well you run, how well you train. If you're coming in off fatigue, and even, you know, I don't tend to drink much alcohol, because that does impact your sleep cycle. And so I tend not to drink that if I'm running the next day because it'll just have me starting behind where I could be. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What do you do before getting into bed? Do you have a wind down routine? Probably not a great one. I know there's a good rationale for keeping the screen time down, but it's usually just myself and my wife will spend some time just chatting um she'll show me a few memes we like to joke that memes are her love language and so often throughout the day she'll see some memes on social media and she'll just collect them up during the day and at the end of the day we'll we'll sit there and we'll go through them together and have a bit of a laugh and that, that's a pretty good way to sort of wind down and end the day and and then yeah get some sleep from there i like it winding the down the winding down with some laughter yeah so, uh, Jared, um, what resources do you find most helpful for productivity and habit formation? I was thinking about this question quite a bit because I probably read a lot less than I used to. and I should read more. I do read a lot still. It's just a lot of it's associated with my work. In terms of, you know, productivity tools, I've mentioned that I just use my calendar as my primary productivity management 
an analysis thing, but when it comes to some of the philosophies and ideas around productivity, I tend to read broadly. Um, I've read across many different philosophers and even in the sort of business advice, I've looked at different business models and different business approaches over time. And, you know, probably three books that I could say have influenced the way that I think and the way that I approach my work would be um, Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. I think that as a as a model of thinking, it's been really useful for framing how I approach my work, how I think and do things and make decisions, uh, especially from a neurodivergent angle. I sometimes point out to people that the idea of masking in neurodivergence is basically having to be in Kahneman's system two thinking, where for a neurotypical person, that's system one, where it's instinctual. You just know what the social code is, for example, and you don't have to think about it. Whereas I'm going into a social situation. I'm having to be conscious of how I'm holding myself, what words I'm saying, how I'm making eye contact or what gestures I'm using. And that takes energy because I'm using that conscious thought process rather than an unconscious thought process. And so that's also taking away from my capacity to take in other information and process it. So I read Kahneman well before my autism diagnosis, but it's been influential to me in sort of thinking about how I think and how I approach particular problems and solutions. The other books that I've sort of liked, I'm a reasonable fan of a author, David Meister, who's considered kind of a, a king in the consulting world. Some of the key texts around consulting businesses and service firm businesses have Maester's name on it somewhere or Maester's influence. And one of the ones that I've been reading a fair bit and going back to is one called First Among Equals, which is the whole idea of managing people as people and particularly managing high-performing individuals. When you're working in an environment where you've got a lot of highly intelligent, highly motivated people, you know, it can be tricky to balance the need to get a collective focus around something whilst also allowing that person to have the autonomy and empowerment to do their job. And so how do you manage that well? And so that book's really about digging into how do you create these teams of high-performing individuals and allow them to do their best work? And that really cuts across most of my work in the in the consulting space because each project I'm going to have a different team. I don't just bring a team off the shelf into a project. I'm looking at who are the best people to address the problem at hand. What skill set are we going to need? What capacity might buy, I mean could be building in a team member through their participation in that project so that they're able to do different projects or you know, achieve the goals that they want to achieve. So we're constantly thinking about that, but it also means every project has a different team and different dynamic. And, you know, as director, I've got to keep an eye on that and, and make sure that that's working well and sometimes step in to remove barriers or manage relationships. Um, thankfully, most of the time, it's, it's smooth sailing because I've got some really great people that I get to work with. But it's important that they remain great you know they remain happy to turn up to work and and motivated so that that book first among equals has been sort of quite influential on that 
the other book that I sort of read and I, I don't necessarily agree with everything in it, although it's very thought provoking for me is one called Let My People Go Surfing by Yvonne Chouinard, um, who is the founder of Patagonia. And just some of the business lessons there from creating an organization around purpose and how you operate that and some of the hard lessons that they've learned about, you know, what works and what doesn't in trying to essentially forge a path away from traditional business models. And so that's that's been useful and thought-provoking reading for me as I sort of think about, well, with my firm and the nonprofits that I work with, how do we get business models that are going to be appropriate to what we're trying to achieve, both, you know, in traditional business goals of, you know, keeping the lights on, but also the social goals of, of trying to build a better world. And, you know, how can we do that effectively and, you know, not go bankrupt doing it? Hmm. And I love that you've got that on a values board. I, I saw that in one of your posts recently. Is that influenced by what Patagonia does? I think the values board that we have in our firm has come from a range of sources. I think it's something that's almost in the DNA of the organization. They've been around for about 30 years, and it was always built around trying to do social good through intelligent thinking and critical thinking. And we actually started as a software company. Um, we were building training software to support um, Aboriginal education. But over time, the clients we worked with were looking more at program responses. And that's where the founders kind of moved into doing this evaluation type work and, and built the organization from there. And you know, in doing so, they sort of identified what are the things that make us us as an organization? What are our values? What do we see as, you know, almost non-negotiable in the way that we do our work um, and the way that we work with others? And so, you know, my recent article on values talks a bit about it. You know, we always revisit it and sort of test that and say, are, are these still the values that we hold as a company? But they've remained pretty consistent over time. I think the only change we've had is that we added a value a, a few years ago because we realized that we were missing that element from what we did. We were doing it, but we just hadn't articulated that in in our values. And so we added that on and said, yeah, this is part of us. This is what we value. And this is how our teams operate as well. So it, it was just making explicit what was implicit. Hmm. Well, if you'd like to hear more about that, there's I really enjoyed the value fit article that you published. Would you say that LinkedIn is the best place for people to connect with you? Yeah, at the moment, LinkedIn is the best place to connect or follow me. I do have a website that I've been meaning to update for far too long now. Um, so yeah, most of the time I'm publishing on LinkedIn occasionally my work shows up in other areas. I've recently done some work for the American Evaluation Association and I do present at a few conferences in various industries. I've got one coming up, the Research Society Conference in Melbourne, and I'll be talking about universal design and market research. How do we do market research so that we're actually reaching a broader group of people and the people that we want to learn from about what works and and what's needed um, in particular. 
And that's very important to my work because I'm often working with marginalized groups who normally wouldn't engage with government or even nonprofits. And so how do we make sure that their voices are heard and their needs are met um, through research and evaluation? Jared, it's been wonderful having you on. Do you have any final words or ask for our audience? I guess in talking about neurodiversity, I really care about the underemployment and unemployment of neurodivergent individuals. The statistic is one in three, and that's just unbelievable. When you compare it, it's twice what it is for the broader disability workforce, and it's well above what was reported yesterday as 3.5% in Australia. So we're talking nearly 10 times the general unemployment rate. And when you think about neurodivergent employees and what they can bring in terms of the insight and the productivity, let alone, you know, the fact that a lot of neurodivergent people are incredibly well qualified and have multiple degrees and amazing life experiences, and they're just not, you know, able to reach their full potential. And, you know, addressing that I see as kind of a key, key element um, in the modern workforce, because not only is it important for people who are currently in the workforce, but when we think about the future and we know that, you know, more and more people are being diagnosed with uh, as autistic, ADHD, dyslexic, and they're going through schools and they're wanting to know, you know, am I going to have the opportunity to have a career that I want, you know, to pursue my passions? And it's going to be easier for them to do that if we can work now on eliminating some of the barriers to employment, to enabling people who are neurodivergent to get into roles where they can pursue their passions now and also be prominent. You know, when you've got role models, when you've got leaders who can be openly neurodivergent and say, yes, I'm neurodivergent and I can do this, then that you know, allows the next generation to say, okay, yes, I believe I can do that too. And that's something I I really care about because, you know, it's important that everybody is given a chance to succeed in life. And, you know, every time that we've got these barriers, we should be doing our best to try and remove that. Wonderful. And we'll wrap the show with that. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Focus and Chill podcast. To listen to other episodes, jump onto podcast.focusbear.io. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or you know someone who'd be a good fit, email us at team at focusbear.io. Otherwise, stay focused, stay chilled and peace out. <laughs>